Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about an interesting observation in cognitive psychology that uh, deals with language that starts off as kind of just a funny little quirk about the way we process certain kinds of sentences, but ends up having some some broader and uh, more interesting implications about knowledge and language and thought. But I thought the the best way to start here would just be to, to illustrate the prime example of the effect we're going to be talking about. And to do that, I think we need to do a bit of Bible trivia. Rob, are you ready to go to Sunday school? Let's do it. Let's go to Sunday school. Okay. And if you, I'm going to ask you a few questions about the Bible. If you get one wrong, you are going to get a paddling. Whoa. Um, what what yeah. denomination is this? One of the ones that means business. Okay. All right. Okay. So uh, how uh, let's see. Oh, I got to think of these. So, um, in in the Garden of Eden, what type of animal is it that tempts Eve to eat from the tree? Oh, that's a snake. That's right. The serpent it is. Uh, okay. Uh, when uh, After God created the world, on which day of the week did he rest? Oh, uh, that was the seventh day. You got that one right. Okay. Next one. How many animals of each kind did Moses take on the ark? Oh, two, of course. And there you go. That is the the prime example. Now, Rob, I know you were playing along because you already know the trick in here. What I actually said when I asked that question, hopefully you were playing along at home as as you're listening, or maybe you're not at home, wherever the heck you are. Um, You may have thought the same thing, right? Moses took two of each animal on the ark. But in fact, in the Bible story, which uh, maybe not everybody knows, but maybe you do know this story of of the ark in, in the book of Genesis, and you do in fact know that it was not Moses who did that. It was Noah in the story who took animals on the ark. And yet you thought after I said the question that the answer is two, and didn't even register the fact that the name was wrong. Yeah, it's it's an interesting uh, phenomenon to uh, to encounter in others, but also in yourself, because you um, there's several different ways to look at it. And we'll get into a number of these here. But like even just now, when you ask me those questions, like the serpent one, I'm totally firm on that. Like I know the I know that aspect of the story inside and out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, I know it's the seventh day that he rested on that God rested on he she it however you want to look at it. Uh, but I, there was still like this moment of hesitation. Because I was like, it's seven, right? It is seven. I don't want to come come off with the wrong answer on the podcast. Uh-huh. Um, but then when one encounter, and granted, I already knew the answer to the third one. But there is this temptation, though, to like when you when you know one, when you know the answer to something, like you just you can just jump in without hesitation. Like there's a certainty that just propels you. Um, you're excited to, to get your answer in, and then you know uh, get the acclaim uh, and the praise for getting it right. Yeah, there's a certain kind of way in which a question, especially a question posed in quiz format where you feel you are under performance pressure Mm -hmm. and you're being evaluated for whether or not you're going to get the right answer, it sort of takes away some amount of critical thinking that would normally go into reading a sentence and causes you to focus more exclusively on like just can I get the right answer? And so it's not hard to see how now, and this of course might not be the only explanation for why this is happening, but it's not hard to see why you could pretty easily miss a major error in a question that is not, uh, you know, that is not necessarily something that you're 
fuzzy on to begin with. Like you could know perfectly well that it's Noah in the story and yet it just goes completely over your head. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we, we've been doing this podcast quite a while at this point. And occasionally this this comes up in our data, uh, not so much in things that we've researched for the podcast, because I feel like if, if we've been crunching the facts or the numbers, you know, or the, uh, you know, we're, we're more likely to be putting a, a lot of thought into the situation and we're maybe just, a, you know, a little hesitant anyway. But the times where I've personally, like, said something that was absolutely incorrect, it would be something that I felt so sure about that I just belted out without fact-checking it at all, you know? Uh, something Generally, it's something not directly related to the episode, but something that just kind of comes up in organic conversation. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's when you feel so confident that you're not even being careful, you know, yeah. that, that you can really uh, make some big blunders. Uh, there, there were some other questions I was reading about in one of the, the or I think the earliest study on this phenomenon we're talking about today. Uh, some of the other questions were in the biblical story, what is Joshua swallowed by? Of course, that's Jonah that is swallowed by the whale mm-hmm. or the great fish, the sea monster. Uh, Joshua, of course, is the the conquering leader of the Israelites as they go about Canaan. Another one I really liked was in the novel Moby Dick, what color was the whale that Captain Nemo was after? I think <laughs> I think I might have fallen for that one. Yeah, I mean, I wonder how much of the ego is involved here because it's like you're kind of like, all right, let's get to the part of this where I get to talk and get to be the one who's correct. You know, uh-huh. you're like, like fast forward <laughs> through all this other stuff. I don't care. I have an answer and it is the correct one. Yeah. Um, that, that's, that's quite perceptive. And I think that's right. Um, so, but, but anyway, so this question that we're looking at today, this effect of not noticing that the question says Moses and just barreling right on through to the answer, even if you know that it's actually Noah in the story and not Moses, this effect has a name and it's known as the Moses illusion. It's a particular type of semantic illusion that occurs when we are trying to process certain kinds of sentences. And this was first explored in a classic study in psychology. It was a study called From Words to Meaning, A Semantic Illusion, published uh, in the Journal of Verbal Learning and Verbal Behavior in 1981 by Thomas D. Erickson and Mark E. Matson. And I think it's interesting that this original observation about this, this question about Moses, it comes out of a mysterious question about how we process the meaning of sentences. Uh, the authors of this study ask, quote, how are the meanings of individual words combined to form a more global description of meaning? And if you start to think hard about this question, about the human capacity for language, I would argue it is absolutely astonishing. It's almost baffling the way that we're not only able to associate symbolic meaning with certain sounds coming out of our mouths or glyphs on a page, but you're able to combine those things endlessly to form and comprehend infinite variations of combinations of those sounds to create sentences that actually mean something and other people can understand what you mean when you say them. Uh, Like, I think this type of capacity for language is one of the features of the natural world that, to me, seems closest to magic. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like the the Moses illusion is one of those things that that reveals the magic, that makes you more aware of the the magic trick that uh, is inherent to your just everyday perception of reality and how you engage with facts and information. 
and the fact that you're just like it, it it's crazy that we're just constantly throwing together sentences almost effortlessly that are combining all these words together each word has a huge range of of possible meanings and associations and and that we are able to do this with such fluency i mean sometimes with more fluency than other times but uh but yeah it 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 is truly astounding to me and so the authors here are sort of talking about this process and some of the the question marks that existed at the time in science uh, about how we form sentences and how we comprehend sentences. So they start in their introduction by talking about how, quote, a central process in language comprehension is the construction of a global description of the sentence meaning from the meanings of individual words which make up the sentence, right? So you know what individual words mean, but somehow, like we were just talking about, you can combine them into these overall gist forms of what somebody's getting at, you know, like like what kind of answer is being requested by a question that might be made up of 10 different words that are all, you know, throwing your brain in 10 different directions, yet you can get the gist of the question and figure out what it's getting at pretty quickly, actually. And they talk about how there's been a lot of work on how uh, language processing works in the realm of artificial intelligence. But at the time of this paper, there was still a lot that we didn't know about the global meaning of, uh, of a sentence and, and how that's constructed in the brain. And so they summarize the way they're starting this paper by saying, uh, it has become widely assumed that sentences are subject to exhaustive analysis and consistency checks during processing. But this is not the case. People do not always understand what is said to them. Sometimes they fail to understand. Sometimes they misunderstand. And while these failures of comprehension are sometimes due to lack of appropriate knowledge or error on the part of the speaker, there are other cases in which such failures occur when the understander possesses all the knowledge necessary for correct understanding. This paper explores such a phenomenon. And then they give the example of the Moses illusion that we already talked about. The, the question that they pose is, how many animals of each kind did Moses take on the ark? And so what the authors here found in their original study in 81 was that the majority of people fail to notice a problem with the question and simply answer to, despite later displaying knowledge that it was in fact Noah in the story and not Moses. And so the, it's not that they just don't know that much about the Bible. Like they can answer the question correctly when it's posed like, hey, was it Noah or Moses who took animals onto the ark? They, they can answer that correctly and yet still fail to notice a problem in the question. And studies find that people do this even when they're not rushed. They still make the mistake when they are given unlimited time to think about it. Another interesting thing here they found was that uh, the, the effect is not caused by people misreading or mishearing the question because people still make the Moses illusion mistake even if they themselves read the question out loud, including the name Moses. So they are saying Moses out of their own lips and they still might not notice it. Now, in this first study, the authors conclude that uh, what, what's very important, because they're getting at uh, things about the semantics of words in a sentence and how the meanings of sentences are formed, they conclude that shared semantic features of the mix-up are probably significantly contributing to the effect. In other words, 
this effect would probably not be nearly as pronounced, maybe not even, maybe totally non-existent, if the items were not in some way closely related uh, in the way that, say, two Bible characters are. Uh, if you ask, you know, how many of each kind did Captain Hook take into the Ark, the effect probably vanishes. Another mm-hmm. study I was looking at cited an example I found really funny, which was uh, how many animals of each kind did Nixon take on the Ark? <laughs> and yeah, and uh, and I like that because they were saying, okay, well, what if it's just like phonological similarities? Like Nixon and Noah have some similarities. They start with the same sound. They've got the same number of syllables. But clearly, when you put Nixon in the sentence, people notice. Yeah. And so the Moses illusion is just one persistent example from a class of mental phenomena that could be called knowledge neglect. This is a term used by a couple of authors that we'll cite later in the episode. But knowledge neglect in simplified terms is when you behave as if you don't know something, even though you definitely do know it. And the Moses illusion is, of course, an example of knowledge neglect, because the problem isn't that people think Moses was the biblical character who built the ark. You can know that it was Noah, not Moses. If you're asked directly, you'll get the answer right, but you don't notice the problem when it's phrased in a question like this. And of course, it's not just Moses and Noah. There are plenty of other sentences in studies that have shown the same thing, though it, it is interesting uh, that Moses and Noah are like sort of the, the perfect example of it. I think there might be particular characteristics of these two names and characters uh, that make it like that make people especially prone to the mix up in this case, though it is true for lots of other types of you know words and objects. Well, speaking of that, let's do a quick breakdown on just especially for folks who are not that up on Moses and Noah, uh, uh, just to, to give a little uh, you know basic information about each of them. And give, give also, me the give me the Magic the Gathering card on each one. Okay, well let's start let's start with uh, with Noah. Okay, uh, so okay. certainly the the older of the two, the first that in the, the chronological order. So Noah was uh, is written as was, was, was an antediluvian patriarch in Jewish, Christian, and Islamic traditions. The basic story, God grows sick of humanity, so he tells Noah to round up his family and two of every animal and get them on a, a big old boat, the ark, uh, the first of two arcs we're going to discuss here, so mm-hmm. they alone can survive the global flood that's about to happen. Yeah. Uh, now, one interesting variation, I think most people probably wouldn't even, their brains wouldn't go this far into the question. Uh, it is actually more complicated than two of every kind because it also says in the Noah's Ark story that I think they're supposed to bring more of every kind of like certain types of animals, like certain clean animals and, yeah. and just two of the unclean animals or something. But, uh, but yeah, I once mean, you get for, into the nitty gritty of it, it gets a little more complicated. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's all kinds of animal management. Yeah, which I would love to see somebody fail uh, the the test of, of the the uh, the Noah um, illusion, right. uh, the Moses illusion here by by going into a lot of detail about the uh, you know the, uh-huh. the actual biblical text while still uh, failing. I think that would right. Be well, it was fourteen of every kind of clean animal. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, Noah, uh, strengths, uh, mega project management and animal handling, obviously. Yes. Uh, weakness, alcoholism. Uh, that's a major part of the story. Um, actors of note who have portrayed him. Uh, this is not a complete list, but these are the main main ones. John Huston, Russell Crowe, David um, Threlfall. Uh, this is a guy on Shameless. He also played Dr. John D. in Elizabeth the Golden Age. Mm-hmm. John Voight, mm-hmm. David Rintal. Uh, David Rintal is the guy who played Ares Targaryen on the uh, Game of Thrones show. Oh, interesting. Wait, a- Ares to the the Mad King? I believe so. That's the the main Ares, yeah. right? Okay, yeah. yeah. 
Oh, maybe I, I guess for some reason I thought there was another one. I, I am wrong. Um, okay, so the I've got a really funny story about John Voight playing Noah. I remember. Oh, have you seen mid- this one? Oh, I have. It was made for TV, I think. Uh, came out when I was in like middle school, and it is not at all faithful to the Bible. <laughs> it is a very Hollywooded up uh, version of the Noah's Ark story. John Voight does play Noah, and the Ark is attacked by pirates. What? <laughs> yeah. It's attacked by pi- like Waterworld pirates. I mean, it might as well be Dennis Hopper and the Smokers, but it's actually, I think they get attacked by pirates led by the biblical character Lot. Okay. All right. None well, none of I mean, that it, is in the Bible. Yeah. At least they're they're playing around with it. I, I, was this brought up at all when um, uh, when uh, Darren Aronofsky was being criticized for uh, the plot of his Noah movie, which has like um, uh, giants and Nephilim in it? Oh, he, I kind of liked his Noah movie. It was yeah. way more uh, more faithful to. I think it included stuff from non canonical ancient texts, but was actually inspired by ancient texts. Okay. All right. I still haven't seen it. It's it's yeah. been on on the list for a while. All right. Well, let's talk about Moses real quick. Okay. So okay. Moses comes later. He's an Old Testament prophet, um, central figure in the narrative of the Exodus. Uh, in the account, he helps the Jewish people in their liberation from Egypt, Egyptian captivity, and following ten, the ten plagues of Egypt, he assists them in the Exodus. And he also is involved with an ark, but it's the Ark of the Covenant, which mm. we've discussed in the show before. Not a boat, but a golden vessel uh, that contains sacred items. Yeah. I, I would assume that the words are related because they're both like a container of kinds, like yeah. a big box. Okay, so Moses, his strengths, uh, community organizing, of course, and mm-hmm. sorcery. His yep. weaknesses, this is, uh, is kind of interesting, I guess, because it's either not obeying God in everything or obeying God in everything, depending on who you ask, right? Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, if you ask God, he would say, well, he didn't obey me in everything. That's why I didn't get to go into the promised land. Uh, but especially modern critics are like, it seems like he, he maybe followed the, the letter of the law a little bit too, um, uh, too seriously. Uh-huh. I seem to recall at one point him uh, commanding the death penalty for a dude who was working on the Sabbath. That seems a little harsh. Yeah, it seems, seems a little harsh. Um, okay, so actors of note who have portrayed Moses, well, Charlton Heston, obviously, uh, Burt Lancaster, Mel Brooks, Ben Kingsley, uh, Val Kilmer, though that, that may have just been a, a voice role, and Christian Bale. Now, the last one's interesting because um, as I was looking at these actors, Liz, one of the interesting things is even though they're basically interchangeable, like the same, um, you know, in most of these cases, you're dealing with the same white dude that could play either of these characters <laughs> in a big Hollywood production. Um, but it's interesting that I don't think anyone has actually played both Moses and Noah, though Christian Bale uh, uh, reportedly came very close because Darren Aronofsky originally wanted Christian Bale to play the title role in his Noah film, but uh, scheduling conflicts prohibited that from happening. Oh, he couldn't because he was filming like Terminator McGee or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. But um, but imagine if, if Bale had played both Noah <laughs> and Moses, what would that have meant for the Moses illusion? Would it have made the would it, would it just destroyed our semantic understanding of reality? Is there oh, like, maybe there's a secret council that is like, no, Hollywood, no mm-hmm. actor can play both of these roles because it will totally tear our understanding of of, of facts and fiction apart. I, I could see that. I mean, I, so I think what some of the authors here are proposing is that the the fact that it's not just that Moses and Noah are words that kind of sound similar. They've got some 
some similar consonants and uh, in the same number of syllables, similar vowel sounds. That's all true, and that does seem to matter. But it's also very important that they are semantically related, that they are both characters from the Torah, from the Old Testament, and and that sort of links them together. And I think the more you could do to link them even further together and associate them in, in our minds, like, yes, having one actor play both, I think that would actually probably make people even more susceptible. Yeah. Um, I, I was thinking about this, too. Like, obviously, we've already touched on a few extra examples of this, but I was trying to come up with, with other examples that would play on the same energy here. And mm-hmm. one that came to mind would be uh, if we were to look to Chinese mythology, if we were to say, uh, hey, how did the Yellow Emperor decide how to order the animals of the Zodiac? And you might respond with, oh, well, there's this cool little uh, story about a, a race for the animals, etc. Um, but it wasn't the Yellow Emperor. It was the Jade Emperor, who's an even more primordial god ruler than the Yellow Emperor. Um, mm. So I don't know. That seems like it could be could play in the similar uh, could work in a similar way to the Moses and Noah uh, illusion. Or how about this? In Return of the Jedi, what was Jango Fett swallowed by? Ooh, I just see. Uh, for some reason, I feel like that one doesn't work because as soon work. as you, you soon as you say the word Django, like people's alarms go off and like, wait a minute, what are we talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, maybe I don't know. Right maybe it would. Okay, here's one for uh, Avatar: The Last Airbender fans out there. Um, we're hearing from several of them. Which nation uh, was the Avatar Appa born into? I don't know if that one worked or not. Uh, but of course, Aang is the last, av- not the last Avatar, Aang is the Avatar, uh, Appa is the Sky Bison that he rides on. Ah, I see. So I don't know, Aang, Appa, maybe that works? Not sure. Well, that went over my head anyway. So you might think, well, now that we have told you there is such a thing as the Moses illusion, uh, you know, you would never fall for it, right? Because, we, you know... <laughs> You, you will now always, uh, having this knowledge in your mind, notice when there will be substitutions of this kind in a question or a sentence. But it turns out that's not necessarily true. Uh, so there was this original research from 1981, but there have been a bunch of studies in the decades since then replicating the original finding and further probing the effect to figure out what's going on in our brains. Uh, so I wanted to talk about some typical findings. Uh, first of all, some things that were summarized in uh, in a few literature reviews I was looking at. One was in a book chapter by Elizabeth J. Marsh and Sharda Umanath. Uh, it was a book called Processing Inaccurate Information, published by MIT Press in 2014. That book sounds like a scream. But their chapter is called Knowledge Neglect, Failures to Notice Contradictions with Stored Knowledge. And we'll revisit this chapter a few times later in the episode. Uh, but, but they summarize some things about the Moses illusion. Uh, so they say that most of the time people will fall for the Moses illusion, even though they actually know the difference between Moses and Noah, as demonstrated with later interrogation. So you can ask people questions like who built the ark or who took the animals into the ark, and they'll get the answer right, but they still fail to notice that it's Moses in the question. And this can be accomplished with other similar switcheroos. I actually included, Rob, a list for you to look at of questions like this. One I like is, um, uh, what did Goldilocks eat at the Three Little Pigs' house? And a Mm. lot of people will just answer porridge, even though you can later ask them like, hey, uh, whose house did Goldilocks go into, the three bears or the three little pigs? And they, of course, know that it was the bears. Now, that one's interesting because for me anyway, there's a, there's an associated mental image of mm. the bears or the pigs. Uh, they, they look rather different, uh, and, and ultimately they have different functions in the, the stories. 
whereas Moses and Noah are more interchangeable and they're the same sort of character. And they're, of course, the same species. Because the pigs are there to be the victims of the big bad wolf story and to get mm-hmm. eaten. And the uh, the bears are there to, I don't know what, just hang out in their house, I guess. Right. But I can still imagine someone uh, falling for this or, or you know, having, mm-hmm. uh, erring uh, in answering this question. Because in a way, again, you're, you're racing to the finish line. You're picking up on the, you know, the, the basics of the question, even though you're 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 skipping over this 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 misinformation that's embedded in the middle of it. Right. Uh, though it's interesting that you mentioned racing to get to the answer. I do think you're basically right about that, except it doesn't really seem that time is a factor here, because giving people extra or even unlimited time to think about the question does not eliminate the effect. Uh, it does So it doesn't seem to result from people being in a hurry in terms of time, though I think you could still think about it as people being in a hurry in terms of just like wanting to get to the part where they answer the question. I don't know. Maybe that could be like self-imposed time limits, even if they're not uh, imposed by somebody externally trying to Mm -hmm. rush you through. Now, also in a typical setup for these uh, Moses illusion experiments, readers will be warned that some questions will contain incorrect presuppositions. So it's not just like a trick question where they don't know this is coming. They'll be told, okay, some of these questions will be valid questions, in which case you should just answer them. But other questions will have incorrect presuppositions. And when you come across one of those, you should note that the question is not valid. Now, the interesting thing is I would think something like that would almost completely erase the effect because you're putting people on guard to be like interrogating the questions, but it doesn't. You can put people on guard like that and they still fall for the Moses illusion. In these experiments, it does seem to be a very robust effect, like a substantial number of people will fail to detect errors in questions, even though they later showed that they possess the knowledge to answer them correctly. Uh, The exact percentages of the effect, though, vary a good bit Uh, from that chapter by uh, Martian Umanoth. The, uh, they write, quote, overall, the Moses illusion is robust with readers answering from 14 percent to 40 percent to 52 percent to 77 percent of distorted questions, depending on the particular experiment. So they're citing a number of different results there. The 14 percent was by uh, Van Yarsveld, Dijkstra and Hermans in 97. 40 percent was Hannon and Donovan in 2001. 52 percent was Erickson and Matson in 1981. And 77% was Barton and Sanford in 93. And I would imagine these differences have a lot to do with, like, what what exactly types of uh, warnings you're giving people ahead of time, what, exa- what exact examples are used. As we've said, you know, it's, it's clear that different questions are more prone than others. So like, I think more people would probably fall for the Moses-Noah confusion than for the three little pigs, three bears confusion. Yeah, I have to say some of the um, the examples that you um, included on the list here, it's, it's interesting to run through this because even though I'm not encountering them as actual questions like one in, someone in one of these studies would be, mm-hmm. uh, I can certainly pick up on the ones that I, I feel like would have been more likely to fool me. Like, for instance, what kind of tree did Lincoln chop down? What kind of tree did Washington chop down? Mm-hmm. Um, like, I, I can imagine myself sort of this being a story I'm not tremendously invested in, but have a version of stored away, uh, I can instantly skip or even not instantly, but even with some thought, I'd be like, I think, yeah, cherry tree, cherry tree. That's the one, you know, even if it uh, said Lincoln. Yeah. Even if it said Lincoln, because also, I don't know, Lincoln, 
something about like their stories about him. You know, we also have sort of tall tales about him and his exploits and mm-hmm. um, the one about him. Uh, uh, there, there's one about him answering a, a duel. Somebody challenged him to a duel and he says, well, I get to choose the um, the, the, the place and the weapon. So I choose um, uh, what sledgehammers and uh, five feet of water or something. The idea <laughs> being that he's tall and the other person was short, something like that. I have no idea if that's an, even a, a, a legitimate story, but I have it in my head. So I have an image of Lincoln holding some sort of a long-handled tool so it, it, it fits in nicely uh, into the story. Like I can easily overlay one uh, over the other. Yeah, one of the examples that I feel extremely confident that I would not fall for is uh, the one of uh, what is the name of the Mexican dip made with mashed artichokes? <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely I mean, I just know artichokes. No, that is not what it is. You don't mash artichokes, do you? I mean, who? I, I haven't <laughs> I seen a mash. You could. Before. <laughs> you could like a, make a artichoke paste. But artichoke guacamole. That sounds gross. I mean, but yet artichoke dip is amazing. But why is oh, yeah. it artichoke guacamole just doesn't sound right? <laughs> But uh, anyway, so Martian and Umanoth also note that um, the, that error detection is lower when items uh, uh, that items are swapped are similar in a couple of ways. Uh, we've already mentioned these, but they reiterate that uh, it helps when there's phonological similarity. So do the words sound close to each other? I feel like uh, avocados and artichokes, like they have some similar vowel sounds and they start with the same letter, but they sound different enough to me that I'm immediately struck. I think somehow like the hard K sound coming toward the end of the word artichoke, but coming toward the beginning of, uh, or I guess in the middle of avocado, somehow that makes a big difference in my brain. Hmm. Okay. And then of course, uh, as we've been saying, semantic similarity, are the concepts somehow similar or related? Would we put them in a kind of meaning nexus together in the brain? Uh, and, and of course, it's notable that the Moses versus Noah one meets both of the criteria. They sound similar and they're related. So anyway, it's just this interesting fact about our brains that something about being asked a question like this, or trying to process a sentence like the questions in these studies, causes us to ignore the fact that the contents of the sentence conflict with things that we know to be true. And I wanted to uh, mention one other study I was looking at. The, this one is by uh, Hayden C. Bottoms, Andrea N. Eslick, and Elizabeth J. Marsh from 2010, published in the journal Memory, called Memory in the Moses Illusion. Failures to detect contradictions with stored knowledge yield negative memorial consequences. Uh, now, we can revisit some of the things in this more as we go on, but uh, I just wanted to note a few things that they bring up. Uh, so first of all, they, they note some other previous findings in their introduction. One is that um, error detection improves, so people are less likely to fall for the Moses illusion when the error appears in what they call the cleft phrase or the main focus of the sentence. So there are ways that you can basically ask the same question but just sort of rearrange the words to make people more likely to notice the problem. So if you take the sentence, how many animals of each kind did Moses take on the ark? The word Moses is kind of syntactically de-emphasized in that sentence. You know, it's not like the main focus of the way the sentence is phrased. You can reorient the words to make Moses more prominent in the sentence, in which case people are more likely to catch the problem. Yeah, like I also feel like having the word show up so late in the sentence I'm 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 like you're always predicting where sentences are going, you know. Yes. So you've kind of already filled it in to a certain extent. Like you know you know who we're talking about, uh, even if you end up using the wrong name. Um, 
Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right about that. Like that once you've heard, I don't know, you get like four or five words into the sentence, you you sort of are like you already know what it's going to be. And you're, you're yeah. just sort of like, OK, you're like mostly ignoring the words that come after that. Another thing that uh, they point out that's interesting is that error detection improves when questions appear in a difficult to read font. And they say this is because uh, it reduces processing fluency, which in turn makes material seem less familiar and less true. And this was found by Song and Schwartz in 2008. And this, of course, this comes back to our old friend processing fluency, a cognitive factor that I believe is one of the most underappreciated influences on our thoughts and beliefs and behavior. Uh, we talked about it in our episode on the illusory truth effect. Basically, processing fluency means how easy is it for uh, this stimulus to be processed by the brain? And uh, and it came up in the illusory truth effect episode because uh, remember the illusory truth effect is where statements you've encountered before seem more true than statements that are new to you. And one possible explanation for this is that familiar statements are easier for the brain to process than unfamiliar ones are. And at some level, the brain makes an equivalence between that processing fluency, how easy it is to process this incoming sentence because it's familiar, and factual trustworthiness. They actually have nothing to do with one another, but the brain maybe uses a little bit of shortcut there. Huh. So are you saying that in the future for our, our shared notes, Joe, we should use chiller font instead of uh, <laughs> whatever we're using now. Yeah. Would that, would that make it less like, I mean, I think that would generally slow us down and make it harder to do the podcast, but it also might make it less likely that we would just like flub words here and there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because it would be a like really effortful, laborious process to get through every single thought. Which, you know, sometimes it is anyway, but that that's on us. Um, but anyway, so Song and Schwartz here in 2008 found that simply by making statements harder to read, so you put them in, you said chiller, I was thinking papyrus, I don't know what, what actual font they used, but it would just make people more likely to spot errors in the questions instead of just rolling right over them without noticing. And, you know, that makes sense to me. Yeah, 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 I, I, it, it does. It is interesting that that's how our brains work, though. Yeah. It is sort of counterintuitive at the same time. Like you, you might just assume that if something's harder to read, you would be less likely to catch errors in it. But yeah, I think the, there's some kind of process where it's like slowing you down. It's not allowing you to just like skip over the parts that, that seem like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, Moses, whatever. Yeah, it's like, like a bit of food that's extra chewy. So you, you're going to really taste this. You're really going to get a feel for the texture. There's no just wolfing this down. Yeah. Now, in the study by Bottoms et al., they were looking at the question of whether participants can detect errors in questions better if there are just more uh, errors overall in the sample of questions. So if I give you a bunch of questions and like, I don't know, 75 percent of them contain errors of this kind in them, are people more likely to catch them? And it looks like the answer is yes. Like if, you, if you've got people on guard because there are just constantly problems with these questions, their guard goes up and they do seem to make the Moses illusion mistake less often. And it strikes me that that could be possibly or at least partially because once you start you know, showing people uh, questions where most of them contain a problem or even just a, a large minority of them contain a problem, mm -hmm. people probably start uh, – interacting with the questions less as questions and becoming less focused on just getting the answer and start looking at them more like a puzzle the where you're, you're trying to parse the sentence very clearly. 
Yeah, yeah. It's like, how is this trying to trick me? Uh, yeah. But then there's one kind of scary implication from this paper. Uh, the, the authors write, quote, more generally, the failure to detect errors had negative memorial consequences, increasing the likelihood that errors were used to answer later general knowledge questions. Methodological implications of this finding are discussed as it suggests that typical analyses likely underestimate the size of the Moses illusion. Overall, answering distorted questions can yield errors in the knowledge base. More importantly, prior knowledge does not protect against these negative memorial consequences. And Robert, I think you had a note about that. We can talk a little bit more about that in a bit. But yeah, basically, there there is some evidence that just steamrolling over an incorrect fact in a sentence, even when you know otherwise, can can later damage your ability to recall that fact correctly. Yeah, yeah. So it, yeah, as, as we'll discuss here, it's it's not just a situation where oh well, this is a quirk, this is interesting. The brain does this. I mean, it is that, but it it has it has greater implications. Yeah. Now uh, I want to go back on the other side and say that. Uh, when we encounter things like this, you know, illusions that humans often fall for when you read about a certain type of, uh, I, I don't know, cognitive bias or or something, I think our tendency is often to f- at first react like, wow, our dumb brains, we're so stupid. <laughs> but But I think there's another way to think about it, and that's this. How amazing is it that we have such a powerful command of language-based reasoning that we can answer – questions, even though key elements of the sentence do not match with our knowledge base. I mean, think about the trouble that a computer would run into trying to do the same thing. Like, while it's an interesting case of an illusion, failing to notice facts that conflict with our existing knowledge, it's also a demonstration of an absolutely amazing capacity for language comprehension, even when there are severe errors in the questions or sentences that we're trying to comprehend. Like mm-hmm. somehow our brains are so good at getting what seems to be the gist, the intended global meaning of a sentence, even when pivotal items in that sentence are wrong and should be pointing you off in the wrong direction and make you totally confused. Yeah, yeah. Um you know, I can't help but be reminded in all this of, uh, about the, the drawing of the bicycle that we've touched on before, about oh, how yeah, often yeah. – I mean, it's different. We're not dealing with language. We're dealing with a uh, like a, a mental image. Like we all think we have the mental image of a bicycle pretty firm in our heads, mm-hmm. and yet when put to the test, when asked to draw a bicycle, um, we're often floored, right. you know? Yeah, that was a different one of our cognitive illusions episodes. That was the the illusion of explanatory depth. Yeah, yes. the issue mm-hmm. where uh, people <laughs> they they tend to think like that they understand how something works until they're asked to explain it. So somehow the brain has a way of representing a sort of Potemkin comprehension. You know mm-hmm. that it puts up this facade of yeah, you know how that works. Yeah, I I can I know how I know the parts of a bicycle. I know all the parts of a can opener. I could make one basically. But then if you are asked to like explain the steps of how it works or draw the parts, you're like, uh. <laughs> yeah, I thought about this a lot watching the uh, the Outlander TV show about the, the time traveler goes back in time and she's recreating various things that she knows about from the future. And oh I'm my like, God. <laughs> like how many of us, you know, we go, if we were to do that, if we were to go back in time, we might tell somebody about all these marvelous things like, oh yeah, penicillin and. Uh, you know, bicycles and whatnot, and they'd be like, "Oh, great! How does it work?" And we'd be like, uh, "Yeah, no, no idea. I have some, <laughs> some vague. So I have some of the facts in my head, but not near enough to reproduce anything that I'm talking about." 
coming back to this thing about how the Moses illusion is it is and could be looked at as a, an example of how amazingly adaptive at comprehension our brains are, I actually found a book chapter discussing this very aspect of the effect. Uh, so the authors here were uh, Hee Kyung Park and Lin M. Rader. Uh, and this was a chapter in a book, uh, and the, the chapter was called The Moses Illusion. I think it was published in 2004. And so they're talking about different potential explanations for the Moses Illusion, what's going on in the brain. And they conclude that they – or at least they argue that the most likely explanation for what's going on when we fall for this is something they call the partial match hypothesis. So I just mm -hmm. want to read from their conclusion that's along the, the lines of what we've just been talking about. Quote, Research on the Moses illusion demonstrates that people have difficulty in detecting distortions or inaccuracies when a distorted element is semantically related to the theme of the sentence. Why should our cognitive system be so tolerant of distortions and find it so difficult to do careful matches to memory? It might seem that partial matching is a less than ideal way to process information. However, the partial match process is not only common and normal, but also a necessary mechanism of our cognitive system. This partial match process enables useful communication and comprehension. Very few things that we see or hear will perfectly match the representation that we already have stored in memory. In order to answer questions, we need to be able to use an acceptable match. In order to understand a new situation and map it onto something we have already seen or done, we must accept slight variations. Every day at many levels, we accept slight distortions without even noticing the process. Occasionally, we notice a distortion and choose to ignore it, but more frequently, we do not even realize that distortions have occurred. A rigid comprehension system would have a difficult time indeed. Many of our cognitive operations are driven by familiarity-based heuristics rather than careful matching operations. The Moses illusion is an example of how the adaptive human cognitive system System works. Everyday cognitive processing must be based on simple heuristics, such as matching sets of features rather than exact matches, as very few tasks require exact matches. Sentences do not match stored information. Faces change. Voices may change slightly. Even our pets and friends change over time. Therefore, it makes sense that people do use partial matches in the normal course of matching to memory. Partial matching is immutable because it is the most efficient way for memory to operate, given the nature of the environment in which we live. And so, yeah, th this really makes me think along the lines of uh, w what we were just saying a few minutes ago, like the Moses illusion is kind of funny when you notice yourself doing it, but it's also, it's also kind of a superpower. Yeah. Like imagine if you went to a video store, uh, which we still have one in Atlanta. Imagine you went there and you were to say, um, yeah, I'm looking for a particular movie. Um, it starred Anthony Hopkins, and it had a puppet in it. And instead of being able to piece that together and, and tell you which movie you're talking about, what if they were to say, uh, okay, keep listing. I need you to list the entire cast. I need mm -hmm. all of the details. We have to make a 100% match here. Or, yeah, imagine somebody comes into the video store, and they say, I'm looking for The Godfather 2. And they say, sorry, we don't have that. Uh, <laughs> what they actually have is The Godfather colon part 2. Oh, man. that That's yeah. not completely unbelievable. Uh, not with our video store, but just sort of the, the cliche uh, <laughs> uh -huh. video store. Oh, uh, you, clerk, you, you know? mean The Godfather Part 2? <laughs> Philistine. <laughs>
I mean, that's a kind of silly example, but I think the authors of this chapter are exactly right that every, basically every single moment of our lives, we are testing reality against our memories, and we have to do so in a fast and loose way, and our ability to do so in a fast and loose way without relying on every detail to be an exact correct match is is what allows us to live adaptively, to sort of like be thinking creatures. Mm-hmm. Looking for exact matches between the current case you're observing and what's stored in your memory. Uh, like I made the comparison to a computer earlier. Today, I guess we're more familiar with more adaptive types of computer functions that are based on like AI or like huge amounts of machine learning or something like that. It makes me think about like the early old days of of dealing with, uh, you know, computer programming where like if you slightly misspell like, you know, um, you're playing Zork or something and you type right. like Wolk North, W-O-L-K. It's not, it's going to be like, that is not a valid action. Like, yeah, it's amazing nowadays how just like how much thumb fumbling I can put into typing something in search and uh-huh. it still knows what I'm talking about. I still am able to floor it every now and then because I'll get really uh-huh. reckless uh-huh. You know, <laughs> and, um, and it'll just have no clue. But, but more often than not, it'll, it'll guess what I'm going for. But that is amazing because that is the 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 uh, the input receiver, whatever you know. This piece of technology, it's called AI because it's becoming more like our brains. It's becoming usefully sloppy and and loose in the way our brains are. Yeah. Now, I guess we could talk about a couple of other possible examples of knowledge neglect or implications of knowledge neglect. Uh, one that I came across that I thought was pretty funny is something that is seems fairly narrow, but it's known as the Yolk phenomenon. Uh, so it goes like this. Apparently, it was originally described in an article in uh, the Psychological Review by Gregory Kimball and Lawrence Perlmutter. Uh, this was in the year 1970, if I didn't already say that. Uh, but it consists of asking somebody a list of questions, and, and it's designed to produce a certain answer. So you say, uh, what do we call the tree that grows from acorns? And you say, an oak. And then you say, what do you call a funny story? joke what's the sound made by a frog croak what's another word for a cape cloak what do we call the white of an egg and most people say yolk (laughs) Um, which is obviously wrong and people are not confused about the white of an egg being called the yolk but it seems like instead the implication is that there's a certain kind of pattern seeking that overtakes semantic processing here Like the brain starts to conclude while you're answering these questions uh, because of the established pattern that rhyming is more important than the actual meaning of the word. That rhymes and you know it rhymes, March. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's the rhyme is reason effect, sort of. I mean, uh, (laughs) which I think we talked about that in our episode on uh, anti metaboly. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I was wondering, I wonder how many items in a list like this it takes before the majority of respondents will give the yolk type answer, will ignore the known meaning of a word and just supply the nonsensical rhyming match. I don't know. I feel like I'm very susceptible to this one because I I recently was trying to do a recipe and it got kind of confusing. And I had a moment where I had to ask myself, wait, which part is the yolk and which part is the <laughs> egg white? Um, it was only a momentary lapse, but there, there were a lot of things going on. There was a lot. I was like having to to take them apart. You know, it was one of those where uh-huh. you have to have the egg white in one bowl and the yolks in the other. And it was, I was making a souffle. That's what it was. Oh, um, wow. That's and, a complicated uh, dish. 
Yeah, and I did, and I had not had coffee yet either, so I had that Ooh. going for me. Um, it was successful, but yeah, there was that moment where I'm like, okay, I, I have to have so many egg whites and then a different number of yolks, mm-hmm. and which one's which now? Uh, so I, I would totally fall for this. I mean, did you succeed? Did it rise? Yeah, yeah, it rised. It was good. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I don't think I want to put it in regular weekly rotation, but it was yeah. it was good for a special treat. I feel like the souffle, that is just one of the most notorious, tricky, tricky dishes for people who aren't, I guess, like working in, you know, kitchens or bakeries every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was still, it was tricky. It was tricky for me, even though yeah. I, I went with a very, what seemed like a very simple recipe uh, that, that didn't steer me too wrong, but still I got lost a little bit for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm impressed. Uh, so I was, I was reading through this book chapter as well um, on knowledge neglect by Marsh and uh, Umanath. And, uh, yeah, this was, this was very interesting. Um, so yeah, they point to a, out a couple of, of other misconceptions. I don't think we've mentioned these, uh, on, on the episode thus far, but, uh, one of them was tr- uh, Toronto is the capital of Canada mm-hmm. and uh, a blow to the head cures amnesia, which I guess is like a TV, you know, cartoon kind of a thing. Uh-huh. Uh, but these are all like examples of misconceptions that you might have in your head that are, are not true. They point out that, you know, try as we might, misconceptions are impossible to ignore. And uh, your best hope, if you can't avoid hearing misconceptions altogether, which, again, is probably impossible, uh, is to have them immediately corrected. But that would be difficult. Like, you'd have to have, like, a a standing conversation with somebody who would not fall for your miscommunication, you know, Mm -hmm. or you'd have to just be constantly, uh, like, with with paranoia, just fact-checking everything you come across. Otherwise, some of them are going to get past your uh, your guard, and they're not going to be instantly corrected. Mm Mm-hmm. And then they're just kind of they're just kind of in there. Like even yeah. if you hear otherwise later, you might still fall back to the earlier misconception. Yeah, or it's just or it's something that doesn't come up in daily life. You mm-hmm. know, so you just there's never been an opportunity for it to be corrected. Uh, I'm reminded of that episode of um, This American Life where they they started mm-hmm. off by talking about this uh, this this particular individual who had just grown up thinking that unicorns existed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like it had never been corrected for. And so she just had that misconception in her head until finally she's at a a party and they're in a conversation like just a random uh, chatter about, hey, what are your favorite animals or something? And she she mentions the unicorn and there's like this awkward silence. So (laughs) why would that be all that awkward? I mean, (laughs) would she like the unicorn, which is real? Well, I think it was it was probably one, if I'm remembering it correctly, it was there's a certain bit of ambiguity where people are like, is she joking or oh my goodness, oh, she's not joking, she thinks okay. they're real. But it also makes all of us, I think, wonder which what what misconceptions do we have just rattling around in our brain right now? Mm-hmm. We have no idea, but they're just they're ready to go at any moment. You know, they can be loaded into the torpedo tube of conversation or podcasting or right. the next job interview, just 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 ready to go, and you have no idea. I'd say one of the most common edits I have to make to this show before we release it is I realized that I just sort of said something that I knew was true. And then later I'm listening back to it. I'm like, wait a minute. I don't think that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've definitely, definitely yeah. done that before. Uh, but well, I mean, when I said it, I wasn't even wondering, you know. It's yeah. Just- now, now, the authors here, they, uh, they touch on, of course, the fact that, that prior knowledge seems like it should be able to protect us, uh, you know. And, and yet, quote, surprisingly, the effects of exposure to misconceptions are not limited to cases where people are ignorant of the true state of the world. Uh, we touched on that already. Um, another great example they bring, uh, bring out is a plane crashed. Where did they bury the survivors? Okay. <laughs> Which, 
you know, obviously you're not going to bury survivors, you're mm-hmm. going to bury the dead. But again, this is another question where you've kind of filled in all the blanks, you know, uh, the, uh, the by the time you, survivors is the last word in the sentence mm-hmm. uh, and you fall for it. Right. So it's not like you think that the survivors get buried, but you could be trying to answer the question just because like that's gone straight past you. Yeah. And they, they really drive home in this that knowledge neglect isn't just a momentary lapse in memory, but rather something with real consequences for memory. If you don't recognize the error, the error can become coded into your memory, into your worldview as fact. Uh, and, and because that error was recently encountered, it's more easily accessed. Uh, so, again, we have to remember that items in our memory are not made of stone. They're made of clay. Merely accessing them can change them. And our most accessed memories are the most changed memories of all, the, the ones we can trust the least. Um, mm-hmm. So an error that pops uh, to mind quickly is more likely to be thought of as fact. Not, oh, I heard once that X. I'm not sure about X, but I think X. But rather just X is true. X is the answer. Yeah, so I guess this is this is connecting back to that finding we talked about earlier that, you know, um that even against your existing prior knowledge, like misconceptions or errors that get by you unnoticed in one of these Moses solution type sentences can later damage your ability to remember the actual fact of that sentence correctly. Yeah. Um it can undermine your knowledge that it was in fact Noah potentially. And this makes me think about the broader phenomenon of uh, People who are really trying to argue a point will often structure sentences to try to get something past you really quickly in the non-pivotal part of the sentence. It's almost like we have an intuitive grasp of the the Moses illusion type thing where like a – I don't know. You see people like like arguing about politics on TV or something. Uh-huh. And like so one person will pose a question to the other person and uh the the pivotal part of the sentence that's supposed to be in dispute maybe is uh is is one part of the sentence but then in a different part of the sentence there's also like a disputable claim that's just so like shoved in there and goes by real quick. Right, right. Yeah, if you end up with a statement that has some some mistruths sort of sprinkled in there yeah. uh, that are not key to the like the main you know talking point or even the main untruth you know mm-hmm. that's that can off, often be the nefarious thing too it's like you catch the uh, the larger um, uh, misconception or lie in the statement but then there are other lies in there that you're not paying attention to because of the big one. Now, the authors here, they point out that improved monitoring can help. You know, this is stuff like we're talking about, like putting things in a different font, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, But drawing attention to errors uh, can have the opposite effect, increasing suggestibility, which is is weird. They refer to it as an ironic effect. Mm -hmm. Um, Plus, many manipulations designed to promote monitoring may actually fail to do so. And they say it's difficult to predict which manipulations will actually work. So, again, there's no... There's no like one guide, like here are the three steps you need to take to uh, to keep this misinformation from leaking into your brain. I think a lot of what I take away from this is that, uh, I don't know, being well informed is an ongoing process that lasts yes. your entire life. And it's not a question of like just getting the right facts in the bank one time and then you're set, you know? Right. Yeah, you, it, there's a lot of upkeep involved and a yeah. lot of just continual pruning and not just new weeds, weeds that have been in there your whole life sometimes or seem right. like they have at, at the very <laughs> least. Um, yeah, the, the authors here, they also drive home that ultimately we know a lot more about how people come to misremember events versus misremember facts, uh, especially when errors are, are, uh, are the errors involved contradict stored knowledge. So, uh, you know, 
again, we get into the complexity of memory, the different types of memory that we have going on in the brain. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we still have a lot more to learn about just how this all comes together. Yeah. Now, you know, here's a question that comes to mind. Um, I wonder if anyone has constructed a Moses illusion statement using Bilbo and Frodo. Oh, yes. That might uh, work. So, um, like, what was Bilbo carrying into the fires of Mount Doom? Yeah, that sort of thing. I don't know. Of course, I guess you would want to, you'd want to try and construct it, right, so that you get Bilbo there at the very end, uh, yeah, or Frodo at the very end, depending on how you're 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 messing around with it. That's hmm. right. Um, who was who was the dragon whose lair was infiltrated by Frodo Baggins? Yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. That might work. Yeah, I'd say Bilbo and Frodo are even closer together than Noah and Moses. Yeah, I mean they are uh, certainly the, the, they they actually overlap uh, <laughs> as opposed to being separated by by long stretches of time. Uh, very very similar characters actually related, right? They are related. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. It's so, his, so they would work. What uncle? Great uncle? Uncle? Yeah, Frodo? I always forget what yeah. happened to Frodo's parents. I've read it and, and I still forget it. I'm going to say uncle. All the all the hobbits are cousins. Yeah, they're all related. Actually, yes. All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, we'd love to hear from everybody about this because, of course, this just touches on how our brains work and how it how they our brains work with uh, with new information, be it accurate or uh, or, or or misconception. Uh, so, I think everybody out there has something to share. Uh, which of these uh, Moses illusions worked uh, the most on you? Which ones have worked on you in the past? Uh, we'd love to hear from you. All right. If you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, you know where to find it. You can find the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed wherever you get your, your podcasts. And we'll have core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind on Tuesdays and Thursdays. You got Listener Mail on Mondays. You got the, uh, you've got the Artifact on Wednesdays. You got Weird House Cinema on Fridays and a Vault episode on the weekends. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.